Brought to you by Big Comedy Network. Pillow fight, pillow fight. Is yours made of goose? We got feathers flying everywhere. Mine's made of goose. Pillow fight, pillow fight. This is so fun. Pillow fighting. Why is this so fun? Pillow fight. Today on Pillow Fight, I'm joined by Catherine Ryan, a Canadian comedian currently living in the UK. Her stand-up specials, In Trouble and Glitter Room, as well as her sitcom, The Duchess, are currently streaming on Netflix. If you're more of a literature guy, you can pre-order her book, The Audacity, which releases in September. For a more frequent dose of Catherine, listen to her weekly podcast, Telling Everybody Everything, and follow her on Twitter and Instagram, at Cathbum. This week, we talk about whiny white men, the Daily Mail, and a certain celebrity-affiliated religious group. Fuck. Mary? Kill. Fuck, Mary, kill. So um, we were talking about how cancel culture has been at the center of a lot of conversations between like cishet white dudes, particularly in American comedy. And no one really asked for their opinions, but they keep giving them. And so I thought we could play Fuck, Mary Kill with some recent stances on cancel culture from some white dude comedians. Yay. So <laughs> the first one is during a recent appearance on Good Morning Britain, Seth Rogen responded to comedians complaints about cancel culture. He said, there are certain jokes that for sure have not aged well, but I think that's the nature of comedy. If you've made a joke that's aged terribly, accept it. And if you don't think it's aged terribly, then say that. Criticism is one of the things that goes along with being an artist. Number two, the other Rogan, Joe Rogan. In an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, he said that you can never be woke enough for the woke crowd and that eventually straight white men will be the ultimate victims of PC culture. Eventually, they won't be able to talk or even go outside. Number three, Bill Burr. After his SNL monologue last year, he reflected on the backlash coming from cancel culture, and he said that it's made him a better comedian. He's a big fan of trashing both sides and just doesn't like it when unfunny people tell him that his jokes aren't funny. So Seth Rogen, Joe Rogan, and Bill Burr, their takes on cancel culture. Fuck, Mary kill. What would you do? Oh, my gosh. It's so hard because I want to kill so many little nuances in what they've said, but I also want to marry some of what they said. Like, I get it. I'm a comedian. I'm white. I'm 37. So it has been an adjustment for me that a lot of teenagers, um, you know, wonderfully are finding comedy and they're finding some of my old specials and they are taking issue with the way that I said certain things or the way I articulated ideas, which I believe to be very progressive activism woke but woke has been ripped from what I thought that it was and it's evolved into something else and now I do have teenagers cancel well you know quote unquote canceling me sometimes so I agree I think Ricky Gervais was one of the first who was like here's how comedy works you say something some people say you're a dickhead and you're wrong for saying it and then they don't buy tickets to your show if they think that and that's not canceling that's just how it works joe rogan i will kill what he said because i feel like this whole idea of oh comedy is so dangerous i'm such an outlaw and soon i won't be able to go outside what's that like um i don't think white men have ever had to experience that in the same way that genuinely every other gender and ethnicity has um and he's not silenced he has like 190 million downloads a week so i think that's a little bit catastrophizing so i will 
fuck. No, I will kill that statement. Mm -hmm. And then Bill Burr had a challenging monologue on SNL when he really uh, disparaged white women. And that was interesting for me because I had to go, Ooh, I don't mind being criticized. I don't love being criticized by Bill Burr. I think he has uh, said a few things about female comics and we're kind of supposed to be on the same team. Mm -hmm. So when male comics come after female comics, even in a joking way, I'm like, ah, you're supposed to be like our brothers and look after us. But it was cool. I took account of what he said and I was like, yeah, I I do hoist my Gucci boot over the line. (laughs) And I go, what about me? (laughs) So I will fuck the Bill Burr comment. Yeah, it was all right. Pretty spicy. Turns me on a bit because he's a good writer. And I agree that (laughs) I don't like unfunny people judging comedy. And then Seth Rogen, I suppose I will marry his statement. And that was very heavily influenced by his followership of you. I mean, I, I agree that comedy doesn't age well. And I think that if you're speaking as you do, if you're reacting immediately to culture, no one expects you to be a time traveler or a fortune teller and to think ahead and go, oh, well, this is going to be digested and metabolized by a culture which doesn't exist yet. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous to expect a comedian who's reacting instantly to the culture around them and commenting and articulating their feelings in that moment to also be a fortune teller. And I have been guilty of articulating myself in ways that haven't aged well. Mm -hmm. And I agree that, you know, that's shitty sometimes and you have to go, oh, that didn't age well. And you have to own up to it and go, oh, I didn't realize that. Like an example that I have done is I grew up very near to Detroit um, in Canada, but it Mm -hmm. was close to Detroit and we didn't have any of our own television. I don't think Canada still does, but uh, with the exception of like Schitt's Creek, we have Schitt's Creek and a salmon fishing show and nothing else. We watched a lot of BET and a lot of like deaf comedy, deaf jam comedy, and a lot of Moesha and Sister Sister and Family Matters and Martin, like Martin Lawrence's show, all these things. And um, I saw loads of black female comics doing that. And even Martin Lawrence, he was a man, but I wanted to be like Martin Lawrence for a while. And the 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 women who were around those those sitcoms were powerful and they were funny. And so I grew up wanting to be like Beyonce. And so in my first special, which I think I wrote 2014-ish, 15, I said um, something along the lines of, when I grow up, I want to be a strong, powerful, beautiful Black woman. And now white women know that by saying that, we're fetishizing a Black woman's strength and denying Mm -hmm. her care and vulnerability. I didn't know that then. I thought it was a compliment. And so you can innocently say something awful and quite stupid, but I think intention is so important and context is so important. And I would have no problem now saying like, oh yeah, that was a stupid thing to say, or, you know, equally I've defended other bits that have not aged well. So I like, I get where Seth Rogen's coming from with that. I think that a lot of people have these like really black and white views of like cancel culture and what it is, but I think Mm. that, you know, things don't age well. And I think everyone has probably said something that they wouldn't say now. And you just kind of have to be able to let people grow and also to accept that you have done things that you wouldn't still stand by and you don't have to stand by everything you've ever done. And there's a huge difference between saying something mildly problematic and like actually actively hurting people in like this huge actionable way. And so I think that's that like Seth Rogen's statement does kind of like touch on this thing where, you know, times change and people change and you kind of have to give people the room to 
grow from it. And if they don't take that room to grow, then that's the issue. But I don't think like having made mistakes in the past is the, is the issue so much. So I would also marry that statement. My feeling with the other two is that if Joe, if Joe Rogan, if what Joe Rogan believes to be true comes true, where straight white men won't be able to go outside anymore, I think that could be kind of a fun world in which (laughs) like women and people of color and like queer people just like are having a party all the time. And I think that could be really fun. So even if he just scares himself into believing he's not able to talk or go outside, um, I would fuck that situation because the outcome, it could be, it could be a fun time. Yeah. And um, I, I would kill Bill Burr's thing, which I agree with parts of it. Like, yes, unfunny people telling you that your jokes aren't funny is really annoying. I feel like there's a lot of 14-year-olds with Twitter accounts who (laughs) find everything to be really, really offensive, but they just don't really get the nuances of comedy yet, which is okay. But it's like, you know, I'm not going to take that seriously. I think that the thing about Bill Burr's bit with white women is I think I've noticed something white men in particular will often make comments about white women in a way that it needs to be clear that you're criticizing white women and not women Mm. and just using that like criticizing white women as a way to like make your misogyny palatable to the moment. And I think that there's been moments when I'm like, you're just using this as a scapegoat to um project your feelings about all women onto white women and yeah white women have their issues in society and I think that like a lot of the points he made true fair but I think that specific issue I think is like having this moment right now and do you know I think that's such an interesting viewpoint I'm glad that you said that because that's where blonde jokes come from those used to just be jokes about women and then it became categorized and go, oh, well, blondes are stupid. And, but, but that's really just misogyny. You're right. It just goes quite Aryan every single time. <laughs> it's like, well, blonde women are dumb. Well, just white women are dumb and entitled. Yeah, you're probably right. That's very interesting. I think it's especially interesting coming from white men because it's like, you, you're not mm. that different. Often you are worse. Yeah. The whole like trashing both sides thing, whatever. I'm just, it's like, okay. Yeah. Joe Rogan, at least he, at least he goes all the way. I think it's like, you know, (laughs) I don't, I don't like, I don't like that take. And I think it's really, really, um, you know, he's making it the end of the world, even though he has like millions of dollars from Spotify and like the largest podcast platform in the world. But it's a, you know, it's like a pump and dump kind of fuck. And then Bill Burr, I think it would be kind of like you lie there and you leave. And so that's why I have to kill his take on it. I mean, I respect your choices. And if I'm honest, mine were kind of a toss up at the end. I look forward to walking the streets when all the street men are hiding inside because we're so scary. (laughs) They can't talk. They can't tweet. They can't go outside all these things that he was saying, I, I, he's scared of it, but I was like, this sounds like kind of night. Like I could walk the streets <laughs> at night. I could say what I want and not get called out for it. I've been, I've been having this moment where I'm like, I just got out of college and this past year has been a really strange year because it was the pandemic and supposed to be the time we're beginning our lives. And I've been noticing a lot of guys I knew in high school and college kind of start veering down this strange 
road of feeling that way, like Mm. that they are not going to be able to talk or go outside or anything like that, because this past year has given a lot of voice to, you know, women, people of color, like queer people and like social issues that don't really center white people or white men. And I, it's kind of, it's, it's wild that like the same things that are causing progress to happen are also driving people to these sort of crazy conclusions. Well, I think it's a big challenge for a lot of them. So I recently took in a white man. Um, (laughs) I was single for a really long time and then I got married to my high school boyfriend. We just like bumped into each other. And then I just really loved him and I got married to him. And he's a great like case study. I watch him, you know, I'm like, hmm, because he comes from a very small town. He did a lot of athletics and he lived in a bigger city. So he has been exposed to more people in the world, but some of his views, especially lately, because as you say, there's been this pandemic and I think your generation is affected more than anyone else. People Mm -hmm. ask about my daughter. They think about little kids. They think about the elderly being alone. You know, everyone has uh, a different impact from it, but your generation, like I cannot imagine if someone (laughs) took two years away from me when I was 20 years old, it's just bananas. But I think any high stress situation where you're isolated really uh, gives this monster like a chance to race and it amplifies whatever your beliefs were, your beliefs are now amplified in a pandemic. And he'll, he's such a nice man, my husband, and he'll say things very innocently, ask questions like, for example, you know, he'll say, but I wasn't privileged. That doesn't make any sense. I had to work for everything that I had. And I said, of course you did, but you didn't have the extra layer of ABC. And then he'll go, but my ancestors weren't privileged. They were poor Dutch farmers. And I'll go, yeah, owning land and being able to farm it was actually a privilege. Mm-hmm. And he'll go, oh, like he listens and he thinks, you know, he's a lovely man. But I think cognitively, it is difficult for a lot of people to really work through some of the head starts that they've had or some of the privilege that they still have because no one wants to be a bad person. You mm-hmm. go, well, I don't think I, and it's re- it's a lot to ask. It's a mental leap for a lot of people. And so instead of doing all that work, they just have these beliefs instead. They go, well, everyone wants to hurt me and everyone's mad at me for some reason. And I don't know why, and I don't want to hurt anyone else. So I'll just stay inside then and be silenced because everyone hates me and there's no good reason. Like that's, it feels like what it is. Yeah. I think that that's like the issue with the extreme version of cancel culture to me is that if there are people who aren't like evil people and they've just said some things that are maybe in bad taste or, you know, have thought that they were trying to do something good, but like were misguided and stuff, those people, like you want to help them and you want to help them learn and come to where you are. And if you're just like screaming at them, you're only going to alienate them more. I think it's like one thing when you're talking about someone like Jeffrey Epstein, another thing when you're talking about like someone who tweeted something kind of weird in 2015, Yeah, you know? And those are like very different things. And I think it's become this weird black and white issue that I don't think it should be. I just noticed in the pandemic that I think a lot of people have become, it's been very polarizing. It's been a very polarizing year. One of my dad's best friends just like totally got like alt-right radicalized 
last year, which was like this crazy thing that happened because like he didn't believe the pandemic was real. And he was like, you know, telling my dad, who's an immigrant that like, he doesn't understand what freedom means because he's like not a real American. Just this month, Oklahoma governor passed a law where they can't like public schools can't teach lessons that are that cause discomfort or make students feel guilt about their race or gender so what that means is basically they can't like teach them about how white people have historically but I think like they can talk about the events but they can't kind of talk about how they're still impacting people like they can't talk about the systemic effects of racism or of sexism or anything like that because it'll make the white kids feel guilty and have psychological distress, which I think is a really like interesting thing because addressing those things young, I feel like limits the amount of psychological distress that you have to do when you're older, trying to like relearn what privilege is and how, and your role in the societal like web. Cause I think that a lot of times people have gone through their whole life, like not knowing that it's like much harder to understand. But also by the governor's logic, it's impossible for those white children today to feel any shame or guilt because according to his logic, this ancestral trauma doesn't exist and -hmm. it all happened back then. And that's where we left it. Mm -hmm. And slavery was bad, but we fixed it. Hooray. And that was all that went wrong. And um, everyone's equal now. So how can the white kids feel shame about something, you know, Christopher Columbus did? (laughs) Right? Like, yeah. It's also like guilt. I think guilt is the least productive emotion. You know, they talk like we talk a lot about like white guilt. Being guilty doesn't help anyone. It only hurts you and it only just like stalls you in feeling this way. But I think the idea of saying that these things cause guilt is just such a weird way to like, like pretend like you're protecting the mental health of children when you are not. It's so misconstrued too, because when I'm trying to learn either from younger people like you or whomever, and I'm explaining it to some of my like white counterparts, (laughs) um, (laughs) I have very few friends now, but I do have still retained some and some of them are white. Um, And they'll say, well, I'm supposed to feel guilty. And it's like, no, you're not supposed to feel guilty. It's just about acknowledgement. You know, and then like mediating of your own behavior to recognize that, you know, you have certain things in your life that are different every day, every moment of your life is interactions will be different because of things that no one can control. It's just about a respectful acknowledgement of that sometimes. And it's not meant to make you feel guilty, but yeah, again, it's, it's this really defensive position, I think. And you're right. That's what holds people back from progress, because if you are, feeling like, you know, Joe Rogan articulated that (laughs) people are trying to silence you and keep you inside and, you know, exclude you and ostracize you, then you're going to be in a really defensive position. And that's not a position for growth, is it? You'd never know that we're comics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I feel like a lot of comedy comes from this like deeper observational. I just watched Bo Burnham's Netflix special that just came out. Right. Tell me about it because let me tell you from someone who hasn't seen it. Here's what I got on Twitter is a lot of people like shaking in a corner being like, is he okay? Is he getting therapy? So please enlighten me. What is this special about? So, I mean, it's classic Bo Burnham musical comedy observational stuff, but all of these things, it's very lonely, particularly because I guess it's all recorded in one room and the room is small and there's no one else 
there. And usually when you watch a special on Netflix, like you see the audience laughing. Sometimes like you interact with the audience and you kind of get the feeling like you're there watching Mm. the special almost in this one it's like you're you're watching him trapped alone in this room it's all very dark like it's very Uh. low lighting and it's a lot about loneliness and a lot about like existential dread and about how you know society is kind of doomed and we can't fix the problems that we've created now and kind of just it's it's cynical but it's comforting in a way because it's like we all feel those things but hearing them said aloud by someone who is known for being so funny is kind of, uh, you know, like a shock to the brain, I think, for a lot of people, especially people who aren't comedians, I think, because they don't realize that a lot of comedy can come from this, like, pain or observation of negative emotion. Sure. So is it like a man's Nanette? That's a good way to put it. I think a little bit. I think it is more outwardly humorous. Like there's more. Okay. I'm struggling to remember everything about Nanette because I watched it three years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's older, but I mean, it's a comedy that people went, oh, wait a minute. This isn't funny the way I understand funny to be. Zero dick jokes. (laughs) I remember getting so high and watching Nanette and being like, oh, this is not what I thought. (laughs) I should not have done this. And I just like lay in bed (laughs) for like the next few hours being like, what did I do? (laughs) So is there a warning on the Bo Burnham special? Like, do not get high. This is not what you think. I would say you can get high for Bo Burnham special because it's like kind of silly in some ways. But okay, um, I saw someone tweet that was like, is is the Bo Burnham uh, special going to make me horny? Because I think there are a lot of Twitter people who are big like crush on Bo Burnham type of thing yeah and I was like it's not gonna make you horny for sex it's gonna make you horny for like lying in bed and crying with him which is a type of horny like I remember reading fan fiction once about a girl who loved One Direction Mm -hmm. and she needed a heart transplant and she was gonna die if she didn't get one And she just wanted to see One Direction before she died. And she wasn't getting this hard in time. And she got tickets to the concert and she went and she got to meet them all backstage. And it was amazing. And then she passed out because her heart, you know, that was it. She just was like, oh, well, at least I'm dying at a One Direction concert. Then she woke up alone in the hospital and she was like, what? Where am I? And there was a note. It said, dear, you know, Samantha, it's like me, Zane. (laughs) you feel that heart beating in your chest. It's my heart. I've given it to you. And then she was like, yes, now. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who have weird sexual fantasies, like that are dark. Would you rather, would you rather, would you rather, let's play a game of would you rather. This week, tennis sensation Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open and announced that she's going to take some time away from the court. This announcement came after she was fined and threatened with sanctions for passing on certain media obligations. So she decided this move was the best thing for her mental health. She gets anxiety speaking to the press. A bunch of other athletes have like lauded her for this, but said that like, you know, she shouldn't have to sacrifice her mental health in order to play the game she loves. So kind of like taking this situation and applying it to you know, comedy, would you rather quit comedy forever or have all your greatest opportunities come to fruition, but every single day, a very embarrassing new Daily Mail article about you comes out? 
Ooh, I would rather take the Daily Mail articles and stay doing comedy. And here's why, because I have a very expensive lifestyle and because I think that this very admirable prioritization of mental health is something new. And I almost have like a numbness towards criticism or like tabloid stuff or trolls or, and I don't know what it is about me specifically. That's not to say I think people should tolerate um, any type of abuse or, but we've no, like my kind of group, we've normalized it so much mm-hmm. that it would probably actually be harder for me to take a stand and be like, this is not right. This is not what I want. I just feel like I'm numb to it now. And I really don't mind what people think Mm -hmm. uh, or what people say, but I mean, I know the right thing to do. You know, I admire what Naomi Osaka Yeah, I don't think there's like a right or wrong thing to do. I think it's like a personal. No, there is. The right (laughs) thing to do is to prioritize your mental health always and to be a a person who gets hurt by uh, abuse and and that kind of media feast that I know exists. And like, even in athletics, it's mad to me that American football players, we would say American football players here, they get seriously injured before they're 30. Usually they get this like concussion thing. They get like broken limbs and they have to retire in their thirties. And then everybody goes, oh, well, that's just normal. That's what they get paid millions for. And it's like, hang on. We've normalized so many absolutely bonkers things about athletics And who knows like what else we've normalized about comedy. But for me, I'm like an old like cabaret. I'm like, (laughs) just take the Daily Mail articles, honey. Who cares? Like, you'll be fine. I think sports is like this particularly interesting thing because people are their own personas as opposed to like, I think in entertainment, you kind of know people for the characters they play or like the jokes they tell as opposed to like their personalities so much. Mm -hmm. I think there's this weird thing in sports where you kind of idealize this person in addition to like the the role they play in sports and particularly like basketball and football, I think there's so much like in America, like this like fetishization of like basketball and football culture, which is largely like black people that they are using for entertainment. Yeah, I mean, Naomi Osaka is doing the right thing, whatever, but I don't think she should have to be in that place at all. Like it's, it's, no. it's nuts that she has to choose, you know, playing tennis, which is her career and what she loves to do versus like getting, like having to comment in the news all the time because it's like it's showbiz though isn't it it's like well you have to do this like dance yeah I watched when some of the younger actresses started coming out and speaking about Harvey Weinstein and their experiences Mm -hmm. with him and it was so so demoralizing to watch older actresses be like what's your problem that's just the way it was and then totally normalize it and I think there are people who go, oh, well, what is she doing? Cause that's part of the job. And it's like, mm-hmm. I admire the strength that it takes to shake things up and go, it doesn't have to be part of the job. Yeah. And I don't want to, and I yeah. have like $30 million and I don't have to, and she can still play tennis in her backyard. True. <laughs> and for a woman, especially to go, I don't need you. I don't want what you have French open. I'm out. Yeah. I mean, no, she shouldn't have to be put in that position, but I like it. I think it's a bit, it's a bit metal. (laughs) The guy who runs the Daily Mail 
came to my college and gave a seminar once and there was like a protest against it. I think his daughter went to school with me, but it was an interesting thing. Who's the guy who runs the Daily Mail? I don't even know that. What's his name? Who runs Daily Mail? They don't make it easy to find. They don't. Um, oh, it's the, it was the editor who came. His name is Jordy, Jordy Greg, Jordy Greek. Jordy, what a weird name for a man born in 1960 London. Oh, he went to Eaton's College and then Oxford. Posh, posh, posh. And his parents are a Sir, Sir Karen Greig, Greg. I think we say Greg like that. Ooh, his twin sister, Laura, who is a lady in waiting to Diana, Princess of Wales. See, we have such old money in England. I was so not used to that in Canada. Like in Canada, you are solvent or you're not. And then here they use language like working class middle class, upper class, and like they have property portfolios and titles. It's so weird. I never get used to it. The way they even describe the different accents in London is also this crazy thing. What do they call the royal accent is called something different. Like RRP or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like where I live, most people talk like this, babe. They be like, well, are you coming down to the pub or not? It's going to be well good time. You don't go to Oxford and talk like that. They will beat it out of you. <laughs> I, it's more entertaining, though, I think. It's fun. Even my daughter, shamefully, you know, I sent her to a nice school because I could and because I can't change yeah. the world in the time that it takes to, like, raise her. She doesn't go to, like, Eton College or anything. I don't think girls are allowed there still. But um, she still comes home. You know, it's a, it's a grassroots enough school that she still calls me bruv and fam. She'll be like mom brav i'm like i'm okay the daily mail i think the also the thing is is every day a new daily mail article about you comes out like what does that really even mean because every day five million articles on the daily mail come out and like what are the chances that someone's gonna focus on yours that's so good that you know that so young because no one gives a shit about your bad reviews your bad experiences your embarrassing moments more than you do no one will mm-hmm. ever give a shit equally your, your accomplishments, people don't take as much notice as you think, but you have to just let it all go. People are so wound up in their own stuff, especially comics. Mm-hmm. So, and the Daily Mail, I mean, they're lovely lately. They just copy paste my Instagram. They have me on like bump watch, like pregnant or fat, pregnant or fat. It's fun. <laughs> I think it's interesting because I feel like I've had these moments lately, especially in quarantine where I'm like someone that I care about is upset with like something I said or did and I'll like break down I'll be like oh my gosh like I'm a terrible person and when like I have a bigger platform the whole world is going to criticize me for these things and I can't handle it but then like someone will say that to me on like Twitter or something and I'm like okay like weirdo like I don't care about your yeah like who are you like I don't you don't have a profile picture I don't care what you have to say well I think if someone creates nothing then they aren't in a position to criticize those who create something. And of course you want people to like the work that you put out and you don't want to offend anyone. Of course not. We don't wake up in the morning and be like, I'm going to piss off, you know, as many white men as I can today. (laughs) We're not talking about them. We're talking about like our experience in this world. And um, you will just make some people mad sometimes. It's like the fame tax. So let's say you have to pay 20% tax, or let's say you're in a bracket where you have to pay 40% tax. 
that's a very privileged bracket to be in. So if you're so famous, if you're like Meghan Markle famous Mm -hmm. and it really feels like everyone hates you, it's, I mean, I don't, I don't condone it, but it is a fame tax. Yeah. And it's unavoidable. She had the fame tax and then she also had to start paying a royal tax. So that was like double duty. Okay. Second, would you rather? I felt like this was kind of maybe personal to you because you said like you married your childhood sweetheart. But um, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez have like rekindled their romance from 17 years ago. And copied me, copied me. (laughs) You did it first. People think they've spotted Ben wearing a watch that J-Lo gave him in 2002. And before he was with J-Lo, he was in a relationship with Ana de Armas and he had a life-size cardboard cutout of her in Mm -hmm. his home. So I want to know which would mean more to you. Would you rather rekindle a romance with someone who kept a sentimental gift that you gave them back in the day? So like, they still kept something from way back then or start dating someone who in order to prove their commitment to you, put a cardboard cutout of your most glamorous photo up in a room in their home. Hmm. Well, let's call it what it is. Ben Affleck did not keep that watch from JLo because it was sentimental. He kept it because I'm sure it is a financial asset. It is Mm -hmm. insured. Um, I would be keeping that watch as well. Um, And men keep watches, don't they? There's something with men, like your phone tells you what time it is, (laughs) but they want to spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars, these famous men on a collection of watches, which they keep under glass and they justify it to themselves. Even like some of the guys I know will have like a $2,000, $3,000 watch and they'll go, oh, well, I'll be passing it down to my grandson. I'm like, what makes Mm -hmm. you think you're getting a grandson? Like you just, (laughs) all you do is buy watches, so many watches. But um, I have a cardboard cut out of myself in my house. It's pretty sad. No, I think that's fun. Well, it's it's meant to be a joke. It was left over from a merch stand at one of my tours. And it is so glamorous. And it's right at the front entrance when you come in. And I like that delivery people or like builders have to be confronted with like <laughs> the real me and the cardboard cutout side by side. And they're like, whoa, I think it's a nice <laughs> sort of wake up call for everyone to Mm -hmm. be like, here's Photoshop and here's what I look like. Um, well, normally I would not advocate getting back with a childhood sweetheart. I think the exes are that for a reason. Mm -hmm. I think Ben and Jen seem to have some special chemistry, but we don't really know what's going on. It could have just been like a few fun weekends. I think their relationship, (sighs) it feels funny. Like when I slept with my husband again, I did it for a laugh. Like I bumped into him in the bar. (laughs) He looked really hot. We were childhood sweethearts. We're from such a small town that we still have mutual friends. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I have to have sex with him tonight because I won't get another opportunity. I'll probably never see him again. I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And I thought as a comic, I was like, my friends will get such a laugh. This is such a good story. And he agreed, you know, there was consent all around. He was like, yeah, it's funny. And then um, normally I would never do that. And if it had been any of my other exes, like it would have been a disaster. Mm -hmm. So I would say that if you have the opportunity to date someone fresh who loves you and adores you so much that they actually have a cardboard cutter of you in their home, I think I would point people in that direction. I would rather that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I'm, my love language is not gift giving. It's like not. Mm. So someone keeping a gift that I gave them a long time ago, I probably wouldn't even remember giving it to them. (laughs) You know, it's just not, 
Like I'm not, I like giving gifts, but they're never things like that. My ex was not a very, not very fashionable. And so frequently I, I was a big wardrobe contributor. Mm. Those clothes still being posted on Instagram, still being worn. <laughs> so I think that's like, I kind of do, I had a high dose of that sort of, and it's like, I wouldn't find it. We're never going to get back together, but I wouldn't find it special that, you know, you kept jewelry or clothes that I gave you. It's kind of annoying that you dated someone who was so infantile that they needed to be dressed. (laughs) You know, it's more annoying than anything else. It's like, why don't you have your own pants yet? I dressed my ex too all the time. And he would post on Instagram and tag the designer instead of tagging me. I was like, excuse me, no one gifted hashtag gifted by me. I think it's really funny when people talk about celebrities as like a fashion inspiration from their like red carpet looks (laughs) a lot of times I'm like someone chose that like someone put that all together and yeah they do not celebrities are like toddlers they don't clean their own homes they don't make their own food they don't dress (laughs) themselves they don't drive themselves anywhere like my daughter said to me when she was younger because I've been friends with my stylist who's from Chicago, like you. Mm -hmm. Um, She's called Jennifer Mahalski-Bright. And we're really good friends because she saw me on TV and reached out to my agent and set up a lunch. And then at that lunch, we drank champagne and orange juice. And she said, you dress well, but I could dress you better. And I was like, (laughs) ooh, I like that spice. And now we're like actually best friends. Mm -hmm. But my daughter said to me once as a slam, she was like, mommy, even I can dress myself. And I was like, (laughs) rude. She was like five. She dressed herself. She's like, see, mommy, even I can dress myself. You should dress yourself. And I was like, well, I can't, but I'm, I digress. Go on. So you aren't, your language of love is not gifting. You don't like that one. Yeah. But I do love kind of a insane display of uh, loyalty. And I think Mm. that a cardboard, my most glamorous photo cardboard cutout in someone's home I'm always there. You're always thinking of me. You can't, you can't not. If we ever break up, the paparazzi is going to catch the trash, (laughs) the people taking it out and they're going to know you're kind of going through it. If you are, you know, having to publicly trash this cardboard cut out of me. And it's like, you know, I, it's kind of, I think it's glamorous. So yeah. What a low moment is just your ex carrying you out to the recycling, putting you face down with the La Croix. <laughs> Those pictures were so funny when the cardboard cutout bound to Dharmas got like thrown away. And <laughs> it was just, oh, that is He's so great funny. for paparazzi. Like yeah. he is keeping a lot of people gainfully employed with his Dunkin' Donuts runs and his like gaffes. I, mm-hmm. I loved the Raya gaff. Oh yeah. Um, the Raya one was, the Raya one was funny. It was. And he's an innocent bystander in that really, because I don't feel like he was being creepy. He was just going, I think you deleted me thinking I was a catfish, yeah. but it's me. And then <laughs> she posted it. I mean, that's welcome to Gen Z, Ben. Uh-huh. We uh, keep receipts. I, th- I think that he's, fu- I think that he's funny and he always ends up in these situations that are really amusing. And so he's just the gift that keeps on giving Ben Affleck. I heard, and it might be false, but I heard um, some celeb rumor that before he married Jennifer Garner, she was being wooed by another big celebrity who had intentions to marry her and like sweep her off her feet. And he's someone who's notorious for like seeking out 
wives um, kind of for who they are and what they look like. And he's in a religious organization that is quite controversial and he's very, very, very famous like action man. So I heard that he, this man was putting the moves on Jennifer Garner so strong and trying to be like, let's meet up, let's meet up. And she's like, oh, I can't, I'm filming here, I'm filming there. He's like, I'll come to you, where are you? And she's like, well, I can't, I'm filming this thing in Canada. And she had said something to him briefly about how she loved tigers. So she gets a knock on her trailer door in Canada. And the runner is like, look, I don't know really how to explain you. Just got to come with me. A gift came for you. And there was this massive delivery, like a crate with baby tigers. And she was like, what? And it was, this is very pre-Tiger King, by the way. We're talking early 2000s. So she goes and has like a little play with these tiger kittens. She's like, it's so weird. And then um, she rang him to say thank you. Like she's not interested in this um, aviation yes uh cocktail man (laughs) i don't know (laughs) and trying to keep your podcast like litigiously clean Mm -hmm. and um he ring she rings him to go thanks for the tiger and when and he said there now do you know what freedom feels like and she was like i don't get it and he's like if you're with me you know it's it's baby tigers all the time it's total freedom and she was like ew and then she went and married ben affleck like the two days later she was like fuck this didn't want to be single anymore i don't know ben affleck but he seems like very much not that kind of dude i think we do know ben affleck yamini i think we know him just intuitively i think we know him more than we know a lot of people <laughs> You know, the religious organization that the action man belongs to, I feel like I'm definitely on some watch list of theirs because Uh I'm very fascinated by them. Yeah. They're an intriguing bunch. Well, that's where our interview comes to an end because (laughs) I do not wish to join you on that watch list. (laughs) I know what freedom feels like. Truth or dare, Catherine? Truth. Um, okay, what's a fake rumor that's gone around about you? Oh, eh, there are a couple. They're not great, though. Like, loads and loads and loads of people always say that I've had too much plastic surgery and that my nose is fake. And I don't correct them only because I feel like I don't care mm-hmm. to correct them and in the vein of Eminem, I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would I say I am? And um, I haven't had a nose job and I haven't, I've had like Botox and fillers, but not uh, for the last 18 months of lockdown Mm because I've been either pregnant or lockdown or both. But I mean, that is not true. And I just let people say that, but it's so weird that they'll be like, oh, look what you've done to your nose now. People just don't understand contouring and gravity and time. (laughs) So it's not a really fun one. And I hate to disappoint people's fantasy, like that I'm some Joan Rivers. I mean, I am in many ways a Joan Rivers wannabe, but um, if I had a nose job, I wouldn't have picked this one. So no. I think that's like everyone is the subject of all these like plastic surgery rumors. Cause I think like given now in this like Kardashian world where it's you never know I think you really just never know but but you do know 
I know exactly what each of them has had down to like the science of the procedure, because I like learning about plastic surgery, talking about plastic surgery. This is why people think I've had it. And also it's because I've spoken openly about fillers and Botox and my attitude towards the stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I would just say, that's the thing. I would just say, if I had it, I know that, you know, no Kardashian has officially had anything done, but I would appreciate, you know, it's none of my business, whatever people want to say or not say, but I think as someone who cares about the well-being of young people who are being basically radicalized by Instagram, I would appreciate some transparency. I think mm-hmm. if, if people were a little bit more honest and went, oh yeah, well, I had all the fat sucked from here and put into my ass, like I would appreciate that and tell me the doctor's name and his address. <laughs> I saw this YouTube video that was like people guessing who's had plastic surgery and Mm. I found it very fascinating because it was like a plastic surgeon trying to guess and so he's like these like markers like indicators of what would give them away have the Kardashians really never none of them have said and have made any public statement about any of it no scalpel admissions no and no like Kim has said uh, numerous times, I think like, no, my bum is completely real. I think she's had an ultrasound on it or yeah. In one episode they would did an ultrasound, but if that was an implant, this was early days before yeah. people were wise to like the BBL, but an implant would be visible on an ultrasound, but a fat transfer wouldn't. And I mean, like at the end of the day, it's no one's mm-hmm. business really, but um, no, just Kylie and the lips and nothing else has been confirmed. Do you want truth or dare? Um, I'll start with the truth. Truth. Oh God, I'm so bad at these because I never, I don't want people <laughs> to tell me anything that they're not like comfortable already telling me. Um, truth. Have you had any interactions romantically with famous people in LA that you can spill the tea on without revealing their names? Anyone slide into your DMs, any rapper, any comic that you have thought, oh, this would be a great idea. And it wasn't. I've had like Instagram influencers slide into my DMs, but I think I've deleted those DMs and I don't really know. (laughs) I don't, I only realized they're influencers because I clicked on their profile and they were verified and had like hundreds of thousands of followers, but I didn't know who they were. See, like Instagram influencers were not in the periphery of my life. And now, <laughs> but I have spoken to a few and they say, they talk to me like a mom, you know, so they tell me all the, the inside stuff and they say that they purposely, they won't give a girl or a boy that they like their number because their number is nothing. They'll give the Instagram handle. And when mm-hmm. they meet someone and they go, oh, DM me. And so that that person can see their influence. And that mm-hmm. is so sad as well. Yeah, I've had like a lot of people on the streets in Chicago and stuff like people would be like, what's your Insta? Like, that's how it, there's not it's so what's gross. your number. It's, it's what's your Insta, which is a really it's also like they can like consume your life before talking to you in a way. Yeah. Well, then I'll ask you a better question because this is bad. OK, do you honestly think that being a female comic right now is an asset or a liability to like further your career um and just for your own general well-being I think if I was a man of color it would be I would have a little more success right now than being a woman of color but I think being a woman as opposed to 
a man period I don't see as a liability I think it's like my sense of humor I think particularly it's it's funny I have like so many men who follow me because I feel like which it makes sense it's just they're consuming women online (laughs) but but I I feel like I write my comedy is all like for women pretty much and so historically comedy has been written for men and so I think as women start to become more of like active consumers of comedy more comedy for them is a good thing and I think that like you know diverse voices are wanted and I think I think like I'll use it to my advantage even if it is a liability so to speak but good yeah that's a great attitude I think your parents must have done such a good job. Like someone raised you to be like, (laughs) not even aware of obstacles. I think there's a certain element of, um, not knowing this that helps you. I'm still crippled by imposter syndrome, I think, but but I think I, in the big picture sense, I can see how it's, I'm still, it's still possible, (laughs) but Good. Yeah. And did you write anything amazing in lockdown? I bet you did. And it's being commissioned and we're going <laughs> to see it soon. You're like, well, you know, I've been locked down. I just graduated from university and I wrote these two pilots and I'm just gigging loads and you're doing so well. Thank I feel you. so touched that you invited me to come on your podcast. It's amazing that I know what a podcast <laughs> is. No, I was so, so excited that you saw my message and agreed to do it. Yeah. We, my family is such a big fan of um, Glitter Room. Oh, that's so yeah. nice. <laughs> it's so tricky because Glitter Room, I really tried to raise issues that were important to me, but still do comedy. And like, mm-hmm. you know, we spoke about um, Annette, Nanette and the Bo Burnham news, but I think it is a bit harder now trying to navigate telling your truth and shoehorning in your messages. My first special was so much sillier um more unaware of like you know it still had some advocacy in it but damn glitter room made a lot of men very angry so I'm glad that your family liked it I think there was this like kind of unabashed like I don't really care what men think about this in it which I which I just like because I feel there's there was so much like before there was the women who were succeeding in comedy would do a lot of like a Ugh, women comedy and I mm. just I'm very glad to see that going away do you know what I found interesting yeah is that um a lot of men felt provoked they would say she's trying to offend me and I don't think it's funny and I'm provoked by that like she's coming after me and I thought about it and I went isn't it funny how and this goes right back to what we started to talk about the absence of provocation feels offensive to them. I, it's not that I was trying to provoke them. It was quite the antithesis. I was not thinking about them at all. (laughs) And that is the most provocation. mm -hmm. So funny. Mm -hmm. I had these like Reddit trolls comment on some like YouTube video of some standup set that I did. And they were like, how dare you talk about yourself? Like you're so great. Like you're not, you're not, and I know you wish you were white and like, you should just (gasps) say it. And I was like, like, where is this? This is so in bed. Like you are looking to, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like they're looking for just to be furthered in that like feeling of feeling threatened or whatever. So that's awesome. I have another truth for you. 
Have you considered, and do you have like a secret in the back of your mind, what you would call your first big international special? So maybe this is like basic of me, but I, it's Gemini season. So, and I'm a Gemini. My birthday is next week. Is it? What day? um, June 10th. Okay. I have always like identified, I don't know much about astrology, astrology, but I've always really identified with my sign just because like as a kid, like my mom would always say, like I had two personalities, like I was an, I had a nice one and a mean one. And I think like <laughs> growing up, I think there was a lot of like code switching that I've always tried to kind of hold like a multi-dimensionality to the things that I care about. Like I majored in public policy and like, I really care about politics and things like that. But I think the way to, to approach them, like the way to make them easiest to talk about is just by like making them be silly and like, you know, having yeah. fun and talking about them because people are really afraid to approach those things. I don't know how I got here, but I like, I like something about the word Gemini in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like also about like the you duality, know, duality of people. And I think I love it's Gemini season, but I also love how dare you. I think that's the best opening to a Reddit troll. How dare you? It's Gemini season hyphen. How dare, how dare you? Cool. Beautiful. That's like my attitude all the time. Um, I'll throw it back to you. Truth or dare. Oh my God. I don't know. Dare. Okay. Can you give us a little reenactment of how you think the conversation between Harry and the Royal family when they decide to separate himself went? So you play <gasps> the characters and you, you can use hand puppets if that helps. Oh my God. <laughs> it would have been so sad. <laughs> Okay, how Harry decided to initiate Mexit. Mm-hmm. Megxit, whatever mm-hmm. we're calling it. Okay. First, he'd be like, do, 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 do. Hello. Uh, yes, Secretary Pompadour. Yes, I'd like to speak to my father, please. Oh, is he available? No. Tomorrow? It's at, well, it's actually quite urgent. Yeah, tell the firm. Tell everyone to be there. Nan, <laughs> yes. Well, oh, no. How, how soon... Fox hunting, yes. Well, it's really, it's about my mental health, my life, uh, my wife's suicidal, actually. And it's quite, quite urgent that I get the family, you know, the people who love me, raised me. I'd like to get them all together, please, uh, as soon as possible, and uh, speak to them about something very urgent. Yeah. Uh, His name's Archie, A-R-C-H-H, rather, rather, I-E, yeah. And me, Harry, Harry, the second son, yes, of my father, my father, known, not available for three months. For <laughs> oh, well, I suppose I'll just have to go. Yeah, could you could you send him a message for me? Telegram, yeah. All, all right, I, I, I shall pen it down in calligraphy and send it forth for you to give to my father. And when he get, hello? Oh. And I think that's how it went. <laughs> I don't think he gets to just talk to his family. Yeah. I think there are layers of staff. And that was, I know, a one woman monologue. But um, I he don't. He has to fill out like a calendly form. Yeah. I I like him. I think Me that too. he's a sweetie. I'm glad. I'm glad that she has him. She liberated him. Do you see them around LA? I think he's in Northern California. Oh. If I ever spot them. I'll, I'll make a scene about it. So 
Good. I'm I love Meghan Markle I think she's like the coolest and most beautiful fun person ever so and that is not allowed over here fun is illegal in the royal family I mean it's just so sad really that it crystallizes just how important you know Americans want to talk about freedom and go it's freedom it's freedom it's freedom but what is freedom and in this country, we're so quick to look at them and go, well, they have all this taxpayer money and they have all these riches and privileges. And it's like, but if you don't have your health and your mental health, you know, if you, when you look at how that young man lost his mother and all these things, and then how Megan was treated, like, yeah, that is not freedom. And I'm so pleased for them that, you know, whatever was going on, whoever said what to whom, like, I don't need to know the details in another tell all but I'm just so happy that they seem to be in love and free, like just mm-hmm. out of this, whatever cage that their family in. is. Yeah. 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 That's no good. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this recording. I know it's like getting late for you, but is there any, you know, message or final words you would like to share with the audience before you go? I mean, I've been performing just like a darkening of the podcast. I know, I know it's audio, but if you show any clips from it, it was bright when I started and now it's dark. Um, I just, that I love what young people are doing with comedy, young women specifically. And I hope that I'm always like receptive to it. And I will never, you know, dismiss your TikToks <laughs> or your opinions on things. I love to see what you all are doing. And I think that is what's so special about female comics, especially is that, you know, you look at people like Jen Kirkman and like, we just champion each other and the young ones, especially like, it's not, mm-hmm. um, an arena for like the same type of combative, uh, dick swinging that I think goes <laughs> on in the green room with men sometimes. Yeah. And I just, I love it. And I love people who listen to your podcast too, because they get it. And I'm so grateful and happy that you've invited me here. Thanks so much for joining me. It's such an honor. No, (laughs) the honor is mine. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. See you next time. Pillowfight is a production by me, Yamini Nambimadam, with music by Greer Baxter. Follow Big Comedy on social media at I Love Big Comedy.